It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. First things first, I'ma say that the worst of things may come to our doors after stocks got floored again, my friends. Not the end, but the start of a new bear trend. Don't pretend that this took you by surprise. It's the price of admission to this prize fight. Bright lights can't rewrite the past when the past don't last. And the easy money's gone like a swan dive. No jive, stay alive. Like Bee Gees on the mic, like it's Saturday night. Like you're not afraid to fight in spite of the fright. Don't you see those rates keep rising? Asset price resizing, bond yield spiking, Fed wiping gains off the board like the Kembe on the floor. We gotta reset, break this full court press. We gotta draw up a new plan on the Investopedia Express. If you smell something musty outside the tent, those are bears and they are back. U.S. stocks got mauled again last week, the fifth week in six, and it got a little messy out there. With steep weekly losses piling up across all sectors, the Dow and the S&P 500 are right on the cusp of a new bear market, and the Nasdaq fell even deeper into the bear den, down more than 32% from its most recent high, according to our pals at Charts. As you likely know by now, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by another three quarters of a percent last week, which we kind of expected. But words matter, and the Fed, through Jerome Powell, used some pretty strong ones when talking about how much it's going to keep raising rates and for how long. I'll start uh, here today by saying that my main message has not changed at all since Jackson Hole. Uh, the FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%, and we will keep at it until the job is done. Until the job is done. That seems like it might take a while, given that inflation is at 8.3%, and the Fed wants it more around 2%. With this recent hike, the Fed funds rate is now between 3 and 3.25%. That's a pretty wide gap between the Fed funds rate and the inflation rate. And the only way to bring that inflation down is to keep hiking the Fed funds rate, which makes borrowing and financing more expensive. All these things we knew going into last week. So why the big sell-off? Well, it might have something to do with what the dot plot told us. And that leads us right into our big three for the week. The FOMC's dot plot, which is perhaps the most boring but the most terrifying chart in economics and investing right now, is the summary of where members of the Federal Open Market Committee expect the Fed funds rate to be over the next three years. It's an estimate, not a mandate. Still, the most recent release of the dot plot shows a significantly higher range than it did in the last several meetings. The high watermark for interest rates, according to those dots, is projected at around 4.6%, which is considered to be the Fed's terminal rate or the end rate. That's significantly higher than where we are today, higher than where it was projected to be a few months ago, and it could move even higher if inflation remains sticky high, especially core inflation, which excludes food and energy prices, but does include shelter and electricity costs. As of last Friday morning, Fed fund futures, which are derivatives based on the federal funds rate, were trading as high as 4.7%. Translation, interest rates are heading higher, much higher than we thought just a couple months ago, and how high is unknown, and that lack of visibility is like kryptonite for investors. Which leads us to number two. As interest rates go up, estimates for where the stock market will end the year are coming down. Across Wall Street, Canary Wharf, Cabotucho in Japan, Frankfurt, and all the financial centers on the planet, investment strategists are bringing down their price targets for the S&P 500 for the end of the year. Goldman Sachs was among the latest to do so, slashing its year-end target for the S&P 500 index to 3,600 from 4,300, arguing that a dramatic shift in the outlook for interest rates moving higher will weigh on valuations for U.S. equities. How does David Costin and his team at Goldman Sachs get to that number? 
they look at their valuation model for the index based on a price to earnings multiple. In other words, what's a fair price for the index given what earnings or profits are going to be overall? Before last Wednesday, Goldman's team thought a PE multiple of 18 made sense for the S&P 500 given where they thought interest rates would be by the end of the year. Well, following the interest rate hike announced last Wednesday, which had those higher dots on the dot plot, Goldman Sachs now thinks that P.E. multiple is way too high. As David Costin, the chief strategist at Goldman, wrote in a note to clients last week, they are forecasting the FOMC will raise the policy rate by another 75 basis points in November, 50 basis points in December, and 25 points in February for a peak Fed funds rate of between 4.5% and 4.75%. Given that, a P.E. multiple of 15 seems more reasonable to Goldman Sachs. Remember, higher interest rates have a way of compressing profitability for companies given the higher borrowing costs. Given that lower P.E. multiple, Goldman now thinks the S&P 500 will end the year around 3,600. It's at 36.93 right now. And other banks followed suit last week. Credit Suisse joined the party, dropping its forecast to 4,300 from 4,900. That's higher than where we are now. And keep in mind, Earlier this year, the strategists at Credit Suisse had a price target of 5200 for the S&P 500 and have had to slash that several times already this year. It just shows that even the pros have a hard time making predictions. Jurian Timmer, one of our favorite strategists out there with Fidelity, thinks the S&P 500 could test that 3500 level. And if so, that would be a drawdown of 27% from its most recent high. For all you history buffs out there, a 27% drawdown would match the bear market of 1946 following World War II. That little bear lasted just 122 days. Number three. London's calling and the news isn't good. While the UK is still mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth, new fiscal policies from the government of Liz Truss, who recently became the country's latest prime minister, have investors running for the exits. Truss's cabinet announced last week a series of tax cuts and heavy government borrowing to kickstart the country's economy. With the UK economy likely already in a recession and inflation raging across the kingdom, heavy government spending and tax cuts for corporations may not necessarily be the prescription for a recovery, but that's the tack Truss and her economics chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng are taking. Last Friday, following these announcements, the British pound fell severely against the dollar, its seventh steepest decline in the past 50 years, and the British government bond yields soared as investors dumped their holdings. Yields on government bonds hit their highest level since October 2007, and 10-year yields reached their highest level since 2010. The FTSE 100, the UK's benchmark equity index, fell to its lowest level since March. Just to put some things in perspective, as of April, the UK's public sector debt was more than 2.3 trillion pounds, or 95.7% of GDP. That's approaching the highest level of public sector debt since 1962. The majority of UK debt used to be held by the UK's private sector, especially insurance and pension funds. But in recent years, the Bank of England, though, has been buying gilts and taking hold of up to 25% of that public sector debt. Sounds kind of familiar, but a debt crisis in the UK would have a massive spillover effect across the world's financial system. We're going to keep an eye on that. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's full of data points for the Federal Reserve and investors to examine for signs of hope or more signs of weakness. On Tuesday, the latest reports on the housing market will tell us what we already know when we get the release of the August new home sales and the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index for July. New home sales are slowing for the seventh month in a row, and home prices are starting to lose some steam 
as buyers back away from 30-year mortgage rates over 6.5%, and that's if and only if you have great credit. We'll get more insights into how consumers have been handling the turmoil with the release of the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index and the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index towards the end of the week. Expect those to decline amid the latest inflation news and rate hikes. How's consumer spending holding up? We're going to find out on Friday when the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the PCE Index, is released. That's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation because it also strips out food and energy prices. On Thursday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release its final estimate for second quarter GDP growth. The second estimate back in August showed the U.S. economy declining at an annual rate of 0.6%. A couple of quarters in a row of GDP declines is one of the calling cards for a recession, by the way. We'll also hear from the last of the companies reporting earnings results for the second quarter, which seems like forever ago. We'll get reports from Nike, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Micron Technology to name a few of the most widely held of them. We'll be tuned into what Nike and Bed Bath & Beyond have to say about consumer appetite, pricing power, and the prospects for a recession. Tesla will hold its highly anticipated Artificial Intelligence Day event on September 30th with updates expected on full self-driving cars, the Dojo supercomputer, the robo-taxi program, and a potential unveiling of the Tesla bot. The bot, called Optimus, is described as a 5-foot-8-inch robot that can perform human tasks such as carry heavy objects, make coffee, and turn the channel for me when I'm feeling lazy. Elon Musk has teased that the robot business could eventually be worth more than Tesla's car business one day. Amazon will hold an event to announce new devices, features, and services this week, including new Echo devices, as well as products from Ring and Blink. Like Tesla, Amazon is becoming more active with household robots and recently acquired iRobot to get into our homes a little bit faster. With consumers on the ropes, Amazon may also announce a second Prime Day shopping event or more special deals days. If it does, that could put a lot of pressure on Target and Walmart who are besodden with excess inventories and skittish shoppers. It's also worth noting that next week is the final week of the third quarter, with Friday being the final trading day of September, which is historically one of the worst months of the year for stocks, and this year, fit the bill. Through 182 trading days so far this year, 2022 has seen the fifth worst start to any year in history for U.S. equities, according to Compound Advisors. The fifth worst seems hard to believe, but numbers don't lie. Last week, Investopedia and Morningstar teamed up for a day of investor education, strategy, and analysis. We called it Investor Connection, bringing together experts from Morningstar, Investopedia, and some of the smartest people we know in financial planning, portfolio construction, and wealth management. We held this event at our offices in New York City and streamed it online for more than a 1,000 investors who, like us, are trying to reset their strategies after a challenging first 10 months of the year, to say the least. We're going to bring you some excerpts of a panel I moderated on resetting our portfolios given the new realities of higher interest rates, terrible returns in both the stock and bond market, and more uncertainty on the tracks ahead. I was joined by Christine Benz, the Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, one of our first guests ever on The Express, John Reckenthaler, the VP of Research for Morningstar, and Anastasia Amoroso, Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital, also an Express regular. Here's part of that conversation, and we'll link to the entire conversation and all the other panels we hosted at Investor connection with Morningstar and Investopedia last week. I'm going to start with you, Christine, because, and I think everybody would agree here, we haven't seen a market quite like this. I don't know if we've ever seen it where you have this simultaneous decline in both the equity market and the bond market. The bond market is supposed to cushion you at times like this. That's not what's happening now. Any precedence for this and any way to make sense of it just from a, an individual investor's perspective? It seems that the closest time period historically is sort of the 70s where we had rising rates, high inflation that did crimp 
stock and bond prices simultaneously. But certainly in my lifetime, my guess is in most investor, many investors' lifetimes, this is the first time we've seen that. Because historically, in the past few bear markets at least, bonds had had a really nice cushioning effect for equity losses. So I do think the fixed income portion of investors' portfolios is what really is worrying them and, and bugging them right now because it, it is the asset that they had been looking to to provide a cushioning effect, and it's just not delivering, obviously. Yeah, Anastasia, we've been living in this Tina world for a long time until recently, and now there is an alternative. In fact, there's a few other alternatives, but for a while there it was stocks were the only game in town. U.S. growth stocks were the only game in town. A lot of that's changed. You watch a lot of these metrics closely. What are you noticing beyond the fact that there's now a place to get some yield, but you've also watched the movement of money very closely? Yeah, there's a lot of different alternatives we'll talk about in just a minute. But to pick up on Christine's point, I mean, this is sort of the year we've been all scared of having, and we finally had it, right? I mean, think about the last several years when we were looking at bond yields and everybody was saying they're way too low. When they rise, they're going to rise. Bond prices are going to collapse and equities are going to reprice down in unison with them. So here it is. We had this year. and Maybe this is sort of the clearing event that needed to happen. But as a result of this repricing, Caleb, you're right. There's so many more alternatives to get yield on your portfolio. I mean, coming into the year, if you were sitting on cash, that was paying you zero. That was paying you nothing. If you were investing in high yield, the spreads have compressed so much and the rates were so low, the yield towards on high yield was four and a half, maybe 5%. Well, you fast forward to today, and I don't know about you, but I'm excited about looking at CDs right now. I'm excited about like one month, three month CDs. Like we have not seen rates like this. Well, after the Fed probably hikes, you know, this week, we've not seen rates like this since 2005, 2006. So you can look at cash. You can look at short-term liquid cash alternatives, you know, and you can get some yield. You can look at munis. You could look at U.S. Treasuries yielding you close to 4% for one to three year paper. That's really exciting. And then you go out on the credit risk spectrum and, I realize you're taking some credit risk, but high yield has repriced to 8.5% yield to worst. So by the way, when yields are above 8%, the old adage says you were supposed to buy that because once yields fall and spreads compress, that ends up being pretty good uh, returns for high yield investors. So bottom line is there's a silver lining and a major one is that after this major repricing in bond yields, there's something to do in bonds again. Yeah. John, is it time for some boring investments? Is it time to be thinking about other things that we haven't really put into the investment mix? A lot of us, especially folks that are not in retirement yet, thinking about those other products. She talked about CDs. I get excited about CDs. We just need to get out a little bit more, I think, you and me. But um, but you're getting a lot of offers in the mail these days. Is it time for some more boring, lower investments? The thing that one tends to encounter when, when you have downturns like this is when people are thinking about, hey, maybe it's time to make a change in my portfolio, they tend to look at what's been working well recently. And um, for example, I had quite a few people writing to me in April, May, June, talking about commodities, commodity funds, should I have more commodities in my portfolio? At least in that case, there was certainly an element of bolting the barn door after the after the animals went out, because I looked it up, and commodity index is down 15% since the middle of June, which would be rather unpleasant if somebody had gone in there in the middle of June for protection against rising inflation and and maybe even sold assets that had had already lost money for them and then bought something that dropped another 15%. Of course, if they stayed in stocks, they'd be down probably since then too, a little bit, but not quite 15, at least not in most stocks. So um, 
you know, I tend to think that the best thing to do in these circumstances is look at what you already have in your portfolio and maybe move toward some of the, the things that have been beaten up the most, for example, like high yield bonds. And, or at least if you're going outside of your portfolio, you don't buy high yield bonds that you don't have or something that's already been taking some bumps and licks rather than chasing uh, the recent success. That's the danger when, when you ask that question of like, should people be doing something new? Uh, yeah, but be careful of chasing that, which is recently And succeeded. chasing the herd uh, and has not been a great herd. strategy lately because the herd shifts very quickly these days. And I think everything, it's, the velocity... It's not a huge herd, but there's been a small movement, at least right. in positively in toward commodities, for example. Right. The velocity of everything just seems to be increasing over time. The speed at which we go in and out of recessions, yeah. or at least the last recession, the speed at which sentiment shifts, all of these things change. But some basic rules still apply. And, and Christine, I love your pyramid for thinking about how to invest and, and how to allocate your portfolio. We're going to share that in the notes to this conversation. But you have some very basic things talking about you know, investment, you know, what's safe. You're talking about being tax efficient, your own behavior, trying not to be a, get in the way of yourself, as we say. Talk to us through some of the things that just remain constant no matter what type of market environment we're in. Sure. And just to describe the pyramid that Caleb referenced, it was the idea of kind of that food pyramid. People who were in school in the 70s probably remember that it had us all eating a whole bunch of carbs. That was the base of the pyramid, that we should uh, spend most of our diet on carbs. Turned out that was all wrong. But the basic idea with this investing period pyramid is if you have a fixed amount of time and resources, you'd want to allocate to the important stuff versus things that do not deliver a good return on your time and your capital. So at the bottom would be having a goal, having a well-articulated goal, having a sense of what that investment goal will require in terms of funds. Managing your own behavior is certainly huge, and we have reams of data on how investors do oftentimes undermine their own investment success by chasing, as John was talking about, chasing what has recently outperformed. Looking at asset allocation, making some basic decisions based on your life stage, your proximity to needing your money about how to apportion your investments from conservative to more aggressive. So those would be some of the key things that should be part of investors' dashboards Yeah, today. so no matter what, you got to keep those in mind. Anastasia, I was... Uh, Kind of astounded recently when I when I heard that ETF flows have actually been constant and and actually been rising this year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, where's all that going? Well, clearly not into the equity market, not into the growth part of the market. Yeah. A lot of that has gone into fixed income. A lot of that has gone into some short term stuff. But when you look at money flow broadly in the environment that we're in, especially over the last couple of months, what are some of the things that stick out to you? Yeah, so it's interesting that you bring up the uh, ETF point, and I was actually puzzled to see that the ETF flows have been positive this year, but I think you're right to point out that it depends on what sectors of the market they've been positive into, which, by the way, mutual fund flows have not been positive this year, but investors, by and large, have still been buying the dip in equities. I think things that they have been buying have been the dividend-paying stocks. If you look at an ETF like DVY, for example, it is down 3% on the year. So clearly, it's held up well in this inflationary environment, and it's gotten some of the flows. To pick up on something that both of you said before, I think investors really need to realize that we have had a big regime shift just in the last six months. All of us who have been investing since 2009 have been accustomed to the zero interest rate policy. And what you did as an investor, you bought the dip in growth stocks. 
I mean, that was really the playbook for the last 10 years. And I think investors are still having, myself included, by the way, I'm having a hard time with thinking that, no, you don't just blindly buy the dip in all things growth because that's going to perform quite well. So that's why I think the repositioning that still needs to happen is we might want to broaden out what is it that we buy the dip in. And maybe not every growth stock deserves to be bought in this environment. So I think that's when we probably finally reach some sort of point of a washout, a capitulation, when investors finally realize that the environment that we're in is not one where stocks without yield can perform well, but it's stocks that have either a solid cash flow yield or a solid business model and are priced accordingly, they're likely to do well. So I think if we were to dissect through the flows, that's what I'd want to see first. Yeah, great point. And John, you've written about this before. Is there a threat or is there a concern about over-diversification? When you're thinking about ways to rebuild right now, is there ways to spread yourself maybe too thin when you're trying to rebuild, reset your portfolio now? Well, I, you know, I've seen... Um many cases of people and they send me portfolios and they've got 27 different mutual funds and that's a lot of securities, right? 27 funds and they might, some of those are even index funds and, they, and it's, it's kind of like combining different target date funds. I don't think there's necessarily a harm in that in the, in the sense that when you do this, you're just, you're just ending up with an index squared and an index squared isn't a bad thing just as an index not squared is not a bad thing, but it gets confusing as to, to understand exactly how you're positioned as well as just tracking all that stuff. I think most people could actually would benefit from pairing their portfolios rather than adding to them. But there's always the temptation. Look, we're up here talking about this, what to do now. You know, things change. Let's go add something. Well, maybe what to do now is actually to cut back on some things and, and simplify your lives a little bit. I think that's such an important point. Purpose. Well, good. I'm glad I made yeah. an important point. You make a lot of great that's, points. That's one in 45 <laughs> yeah. minutes. But personally speaking, as I was looking at my portfolio heading into the year, you know, you load up on things that you know I, I really liked, which is all things digital transformation and healthcare innovation and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what worked in an environment of zero interest rate policy is likely not going to work going forward. So you want to take some risks, but you want those risks to be well calculated, and you really want to know what you own. So case in point, personally, I actually did pair back all these various individual stock exposures that I had. And I think that's probably what a lot of investors have done. And that's why there's not this sense of panic in the market right now, because people have to risk the portfolios. And you know, you're going to own your top semiconductor companies because you have a lot of faith in them. You're going to own your top biotech and healthcare companies. You're going to own some of the winners of you know, the sustainability revolution. But you really, really want to know the companies or ETFs or mutual funds you own because, you know, in the event of, you know, another market downdraft, you don't want to be guessing what those companies are going to do. And you don't want to be guessing your value proposition for owning them. Right. That expression, know what you own, so important, always important, but especially important right now. And it's those companies with cash flow, those companies that with reliable cash flow quarter after quarter that are not guessing uh, or at the whim of the economy that might do a little bit better at a time like this. Christine, you know behavior very, very well. What are the worst mistakes investors can make at a time like now? Well, John referenced the big one, which is chasing what has performed well in the very recent past. The good news is when we look at fund flow data, we are seeing a pretty placid pattern on the part of investors. Investors are are leaving stock funds a little bit around the margins, but for the most part, when we look at what investors are doing, they're staying pretty inert, which turns out to be a, a good thing from the standpoint of their portfolios. We have seen some action out of 
bond funds. But I think the fact that more flows are being driven by target date funds, more investors are just turning their decision-making over to an automatic plan that, that does that rebalancing for them. I think financial advisors are driving more of the flows. We've been seeing sort of a counterintuitive pattern for a few years now, where from 2019 through 2021, for example, we saw really strong flows into international equity. And of course, international equity didn't outperform U.S. during that period. But I think that rebalancing was going on behind the scenes. And to my view, that very much redounds to investors' benefit if they're outsourcing some of this decision-making. If I I can briefly just jump onto that point. I actually looked at this a little while back, flows into index funds. And for for a while, there was just one index fund. It was the Vanguard 500 fund, and that was that was the only index for, for many years. And then, you know, then we get, then we got more, the menu expanded and we got the growth fund and the value index fund and the small cap fund and the mid cap fund. And now we've got more index, as many index funds almost as there are stocks in the market. That's not, really not an exaggeration. And in the early days when these index funds expanded and you look at the flows into them, they were very much chasing the performance tail. So in the late 90s, a lot of money flowed into Vanguard Growth Index Fund as growth stocks were the new era. And growth stocks, it was kind of like uh, where we were recently, but 20 years back, with the internet stocks going way up and the value stocks just treading water, not making money. And then that reversed for three years from 2000 to 2002. Investors did not do well by that because they bought into the growth fund at the top and they, weren't, they didn't own the value fund. You see a lot less of that now. The index funds, even these little subsectors of the index funds, which could you know, be tempting or lead one to, to buy this particular corner of that or that corner of the index, the flows are, are more stable, in my view, more responsible. And I think it's related to what Christine said. There are a lot more people using uh, index funds and models and financial advisors using them strategically rather than as a tactical, rather than just as kind of a whim investment. I'll buy this. It looks like it's been successful, sort of a star manager type thing but part of a strategic plan. Right, there is this kind of battle, it's ongoing, active versus passive, is now a time for good stock pickers or is now a good time for just to let it ride on the good index funds. And we know a lot of investors, especially a lot of sort of 401k investors, they're passively invested, right? They're just buying the same mutual funds or ETFs every month that they set their accounts up with. Is that, in your opinion, I'd love to hear this from Morningstar and even from you, Anastasia, is that laying a safety net or or a, a sort of support imaginary support line underneath the stock market itself just because there's so much passive money that goes to the same places every month no matter what happens? Could be a contributing factor, I would think. And I have been thrilled to see the trend toward very low-cost index funds because John and I, we've been doing this for more than 30 years. Every time we run studies about what factors contribute to good fund performance, it comes back to costs. It's like Jack Bogle Some, said. Somewhere the, Jack Bogle is smiling right now. The costs matter hypothesis. So it may be putting some artificial footing under stocks at least a little bit, but overall I think it's an incredibly I wish it healthy put a, trend. I wish it would put a stronger foot under <laughs> the stock market. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always tough to know what to do with, with flows because you look like you looked at this year and the, and the flows in, in funds have, have not been dramatic at all. And yet the stock market is down a lot. So somewhere, somebody's selling and somebody's been getting out and stock prices have shown that. But it's hard to see that in the, in the flow numbers. Sure. But so, yes, I, I mean, I think clearly all things being equal, it's better to have this kind of passive, relatively passive, steady group like with the 401k monies that are coming in and supporting the marketplace. But 
There's a limit to what they can accomplish when interest rates rise as they do now and stocks are being repriced. Anastasia? So, so to dissect that a little bit, who's been buying and who's been selling? Actually, somebody asked me a question earlier today. If you were told in the beginning of the year that rates were not going to rise by three twenty-five basis point rate hike, which is what we were all expecting coming right. into the year, but we were going to finish the year at 4.5%, you would probably think the market was going to be down 30%. Right? Instead, the market is down 18, and that's kind of a good outcome. Well, there you go. So and this is the good I news. Think, and I think part of the good news is that you have had this bid to equities from individual investors or institutional investors that are still deploying capital. And again, we see that in some of the ETF flows. I was surprised that equity ETF flows have actually still been positive for the year. U.S. equity ETF flows have been positive. So, so I think you have had this retail investor participation, uh, you know, the trader participation. But to dissect other parts of the market, um, you also have the corporate buyer. That's one of the largest buyers in the market. And by the way, the reason why we're having this very choppy September is because the corporate buyer is not in the market right now. They're in the blackout window, so they're not able to buy back their shares. But if you look at corporate buyback authorizations, they're at record levels, and they've been executing them as the equity markets pull back. So I think between the individual investors stepping into ETFs, between the corporate buyers stepping into do share buybacks, that's probably why, as bad of a year as we're having, it, it's not worse. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Katrina, who hit us up on Instagram. Katrina suggests sinking fund this week, and we love that term given all the turmoil in the bond market, but also because I'd actually never heard of it. I love learning new terms. So thanks, Katrina. According to my favorite website, a sinking fund is a fund containing money set aside or saved to pay off a debt or a bond. A company that issues debt will need to pay that debt off in the future, and the sinking fund helps to soften the hardship of a large outlay of revenue. A sinking fund is established so the company can contribute to the fund in the years leading up to the bond's maturity. The prospectus for a bond that contains a sinking fund will identify the dates that the issuer has the option to redeem the bond early using the sinking fund. While the sinking fund helps companies ensure they have enough funds set aside to pay off their debt, thereby lowering its default risk, in some cases, companies may also use the funds to repurchase preferred shares or outstanding bonds. I have a sinking feeling that companies are going to be adding a sinking fund to new issues in the near future as investors' fears mount. Great suggestion, Katrina. A pair of Investopedia's stylish socks are headed your way in the mail, and these have our brand new design, and they look smart just like you. We're going to let President Ronald Reagan take us out this week. Reagan served two terms as the President of the United States from 1981 to 1989. He entered office with an inflation rate of 13.5%, but through a series of vicious rate hikes by Fed Chair Paul Volcker and other fiscal and monetary policy measures, inflation fell to 4.4%, by 1988. But in 1987, the first contemporary global financial crisis unfolded on October 19th, a day infamously known as Black Monday. A chain reaction of market distress sent global stock exchanges plummeting in a matter of hours. In the United States, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 22.6% in a single trading session, a loss that remains the largest one-day stock market decline in history. At the time, it also marked the sharpest market downturn in the United States since the Great Depression. Reagan assembled an impromptu press conference at the White House to quell investors' fears, and here's an excerpt from that Q&A portion, courtesy of C-SPAN. President, the stock market plunge demonstrates that there's a crisis of confidence about economic stability and the leadership of our government. Are those fears warranted, and how serious is a threat of a recession or something worse? 
Well, first of all, the indices, the index that is used for judging whether we're sound economically and so forth, uh, has been uh, up and increasing 10 of the last 11 months. And with the great employment that we have, with the fact that we have reduced that double-digit inflation and uh, the prosperity that is ours out there, the, the one thing out of such a happening as the stock market that could possibly bring about a recession would be if enough people, without understanding the situation, panicked and decided to put off buying things that normally they would be buying, postponing purchases and so forth, that could bring on uh, something of a recession. It's happened before. But I don't think that there's any real reason for that. Reagan was right. The U.S. economy did not fall into a recession in 1987, even though the stock market was a total mess. It didn't fall into a recession in large part because the Federal Reserve, then led by Alan Greenspan, backstopped the nation's banks and encouraged them to keep lending to one another via more affordable rates than were advertised on the open market. That became the norm for the Fed. As soon as the ice got thin around the economy or capital markets started falling apart, the Federal Reserve has been right there to pump in more liquidity and lower interest rates to stimulate borrowing and risk-taking. But folks, that narrative is over and our capital markets are undergoing a massive transformation right before our eyes. Make sure your eyes are wide open for this. Thanks for joining us this week and special thanks to Morningstar for helping us put together a great event last week. We're going to do a lot more of those, so stay tuned for future events. We're going to link to the transcript of our conversation at Investor Connection and all the other panels from last week in the show notes, which you can find wherever you listen to this podcast and on investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Also, we need your help. Every two months, we survey our newsletter readers about their sentiment. How are they feeling about their portfolios, the market in general, the direction of the economy, the biggest risks and greatest opportunities out there? Well, we'd love to hear from you too. So we're going to put the link to our bi-monthly survey in the show notes, and we would appreciate it if you took it as well. It takes about six minutes, and we'll share the results with you on the next episode. Thanks for doing that and for riding with us on the Investopedia Express. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 